Father God, I just praise you and exalt you. Uh, God, I praise you and exalt you for your word. The passage that uh, you've put on my heart, Lord, to share this morning, just, wow, it's just mind-blowing. And God, we praise you for how you put things together and how you revealed your son, Jesus Christ, to us. I thank you so much for this passage of Scripture, Lord, where you just uh, profoundly, profoundly, Lord, changed my view of your Scripture. And Lord, it's my prayer this morning that if we have folks in our congregation, in our membership, that are struggling with passages in God's Word, that they would submit and look at your Word and see what it truly says, Lord. God, we praise you for your Word And we praise you that that word became flesh, and that word is Jesus Christ. God, we praise you in Christ's name. I'd like you to take your Bibles, turn to John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at John chapter 2, 1 through 11. And uh, while you're turning there, I am going to just share my personal testimony, kind of set the groundwork of where I'm going here. Um, When I was a young Christian, I was fairly new to the faith, I'll say, as as a repented believer, and um, I struggled. I struggled because of my science background. I loved science. I loved doing digs and things like that with my cousin, and I, I, I just was into it. And because of that, I was influenced. And I was influenced by our science and what we get taught in school, so I had come to the conclusion that God didn't make things in six literal days, that maybe it was six ages of time. And it was my way of reconciling what I learned in school and what I was being taught in the scripture. And they have a term for it. It's called an evolution theist. I learned that later, but that's what I was. And I was being influenced by a culture, our American culture, from men from the age of reason. And some of these men you know, these men you know, Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, uh, there are others, but I won't go on. Thomas Jefferson was such a a man out of that time. He was a rationalist. He made his own version of the Bible and discarded all the miracles in it because you can't have those. Yet, they knew that it was irrational to believe that something came from nothing because it is irrational to believe that. We believe that the universe came to be because God spoke it into existence. So we don't believe that something came from nothing. We believe that God created something from nothing. But the rationalists became deists, if you want to call it that, because they thought that God just started the universe and walked away. And that's the influence I was under. And we can see the modern-day version of that deist has actually went irrational. If you look at Carl Sagan, you look at Richard Dawkins, they've completely thrown out God, and they literally believe in eternal creation, which is ridiculous, okay, and irrational. But getting to my testimony, I had the great privilege that when I was in college and attending church uh, where Joe and Esther attended and this young gal that I really liked a lot, I had the blessing of uh, sitting in a Sunday school class where Professor Nutting, uh, a previous uh, uh, non-Christian, non-believer, actually a, a science professor, Uh, in paleontology, who became a believer, he taught on this very passage, John chapter 2, that I'm having you turn to. And by the time I was done with his Sunday school, I was completely convinced 
that God created the universe and everything in it in six days and rested on the seventh. It transformed my thinking. I think we in the church today, we are too much under the influence of the rationalists in the age of reason, and we have let it influence the church in multiple locations. We had the 180 conference, and I'm going to talk about that at the end, but that was another exposing of those same rationalists creeping their way into the church. I want you to think of it this way, okay? Uh, I walked into one of my rooms at the house, and I looked down, and I had a broken tile. I've got a tile. I've got a lot of work to do. So I got down on my hands and knees to survey that crack in that tile, and all it was was a long brown hair. <laughs> and I went, oh, praise you, God. You know, that's how it is with God's word. We have an enemy that wants to put cracks in God's word. They are not cracks. God's word does not have any cracks. There's just deception laid down, and you need to get on your knees and wipe it away. I'm encouraging you to get into that equipping hour. It is very important. It transformed me. It can transform you. It's important that you're here on a Sunday morning listening to a worship service and a sermon so that you can have your mind aligned with God. And the equipping hour allows you some time to talk to the teacher and work out those questions. So I'm begging you, get down on your knees and look at that hair on the tile. It's not a crack. But our enemy has made it look like it. So with that, I want to turn into uh, John and get started, but I do want to give you a little bit of preface on this. John wrote this passage, okay? But he has a purpose in writing about these signs. In John chapter 20, 30 and 31, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's his purpose in writing this about this miracle. And the theme of John, the sweeping theme of John, end to end, is found in John 1.14, and really it's all in that first part of John chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the theme is he wants you to know that Jesus is the very word of God. And he wants you to know that those signs are written so that your faith can be strengthened and you can have faith in Jesus Christ because these signs are true. So turn with me and let's read John chapter 2, 1 through 11 together. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine 
and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of signs, Jesus did in Cana, in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. All right. I want to start. We have two points to this sermon with a whole lot of subpoints. So get ready. All right. So the first point is the power of Jesus Christ. You may have that in your bulletin. So if you want, we're going to go into the power of Jesus Christ. And I want to set the setting. What is the setting when Christ has displayed his power? And I've got two subpoints under that. Okay? The human setting and the divine setting. So let's start with the human setting where Christ displays his power. And I love the fact that John anchors this for us. He knows us. The Holy Spirit knew what we needed to hear. He anchors this in time and place. And this is good for us because with time and place, we know that it, when it happened and where it happened, makes it true. It helps for the credibility. So let's look at this. Um, We can see that it says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee. The third day. Now, this is not the third day of the wedding. We can look in chapter one, and you'll see that, you know, you have uh, John the Baptist, and Jesus meets him, gets baptized, that's, and then it's that's first day, and then the next day, and the next day, and next day. There's next, 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 next in that first chapter. But this is the third day. This is the third day in which John has been with Jesus Christ. He's anchoring this event so you know that it's very, very early very early on with John's relationship with Jesus Christ. He's getting to know his Savior. And Jesus is being revealed. So this is early on in the ministry. So it says on the third day, like I said, this is not the wedding. This is where John is with Christ. All right. So we know the time and the place. The place was Cana of Galilee. Now there, there's good... I'll say archaeological evidence for one of the towns. There's three towns that could be Cana of Galilee. One support, one has the most support. So, but I do think it's funny that we have three towns that could be Cana, and it's not 100% sure which one is really Cana. The one they think is about 10, nine and a half miles northeast of Nazareth. So it's so small that it really has no significance. Very insignificant, obscure little town in northern Israel. And isn't it funny that that's the place that God chose to reveal his son? As I studied this, I I thought, well, God, you could have revealed him in Jerusalem. A whole lot more people could have heard about your son. But you know, in a small town, and there's some of you out there who have been raised in a small town. I had the privilege of living in a small town every summer working for my uncle. It's a different place. People know exactly what you do all the time. You cannot get away with anything. And I love that God chose to reveal his son in a little town of Cana. It would be like, you, you can't get away with anything in Gill. If you said to the people out in Gill, well, this event happened, you know what? They'd turn you in if it didn't. All right? That's the kind of thing that's happening here. It builds credibility. Christ, John would not get away with writing a lie about a small town because the small town people would revolt against him. All right, so we have time and place. Let's set the human setting with the wedding situation. We have a situation, right? 
John chapter 2, 3 and 5. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. They have no wine. Now, a wedding at the time of Christ was a long celebration. You know, I'm one of those guys, Lisa has to drag me kicking and screaming to weddings, but I go. But uh, weddings were three to seven days. Three to seven days long. They were a long celebration. And we need to remember that this was the time of the wedding was after the betrothal period. Now, that's, that period of time was where the groom would go to the father and they'd work out the dowry and they'd set up a, a timeline when the wedding would occur and he would be back in his town and he would be preparing a home for her. He would go and he'd take that year to get the house ready for his new bride. And not only that, he'd get his business ready because he was going to have to support his bride and his family, his eventual family. So he had an entire year, most likely, to plan for this event, but they're out of wine. And this is a big deal. This isn't, this isn't a little deal. This is a huge deal to be out of the celebration wine, which would be used to basically commemorate the wedding. This was not a good thing. This was a bad thing. I thought to myself, why did it not show up? Did the order not come in? Did the trailer break down that was being pulled by cart, you know, over, you know, did a tax collector stop it on the road? What happened? It doesn't mention it in the scripture. Did somebody promise to bring wine and they didn't? Did somebody let down the groom? We don't know. We don't know. The only thing we know about the situation is they are out of wine and this is a major mistake. This is a major mistake. Let's look at the uh, setting with Jesus and his mother. It says, And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. We see the relationship with Jesus and, Jesus and his mother. We haven't seen this since he was 12. We haven't seen Mary and Jesus talk since he was found when he was lost and he was in the temple speaking to the priests and the Levites and they were just blown away by his knowledge. And that was the last time we've seen a conversation between Jesus and his mother. And the first words from Jesus' mouth is, Woman. And we as Americans hear that and we kind of wince back a little bit. That's, ooh, that's a rough term. It's hard to define this term in modern English. It really is. We're missing the connotation of this word. The word that Jesus used was gune. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but gune is just what it looked like. It's a word of respect. It's, it's profound respect. It's a word that you usually use with your wife in a respectful, loving tone. It's not demeaning at all. It's more in relationship to the modern word ma'am, but that doesn't really come across well. So the translators used woman. And you can see here that he doesn't use the Greek word uh, meter or meter. He doesn't say mother. He doesn't use that term. He uses woman. He's showing us, he's teaching us in just that one word, the relationship has changed. 
the relationship has changed. This is really a first step by Jesus Christ to really look at his mom and say, Mother, say, Woman, you are my mother, but I am the Savior of the world, and you are in need of a Savior. This was not an ungodly way for Jesus to speak to his mother. This was a godly, respectful way to show that he was in authority. He was the oldest son. She was coming to him. We can kind of uh, see here that Joseph is not on the scene. Most likely his, he has passed. We know that he's gone when, he, when we go uh, to the crucifixion and he's not there. And Jesus hands Mary into the hands of John. So we can see that Jesus, being the firstborn son, would be the man with authority in the family. And she's coming to him to share the need. Have you ever stopped and noticed, and I'm moving on to another subpoint of the subpoint of the subpoint. Have you ever noticed how Jesus always, or seems like always, answers a question with a question? Now, you might say to me, well, Mark, Mary didn't say a question. She just said they're out of wine. Well, no, there's a question there. What are we to do? Okay, what are we to do? That's the question she's asking. They're out of wine. What are we to do? And Jesus' response to her is, what does that have to do with me and my kingdom? Let me read that so I get it right. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I think Jesus has given us some insight into Mary. Remember, the scripture says that Mary treasured all the things in her heart. Remember, she heard the angels tell her about the birth of her son. She heard the shepherds come and tell them about angels, telling them to go see the child. And later on, the wise men coming with gifts. She remembers the day that she took Jesus to the temple and Simeon and his, and his prophecy and Anna and hers. She treasured these things in her heart. I think Mary was a godly woman. I think as we study through Luke, as Pastor Travis has been taking us through that, I do have a respect for Mary. She's no different than us, but I have a respect for her and her godliness. She could have been thinking, is this the kingdom? Has this started? Is this the start? You know, he's, on a, he's been a, a, a rabbi teaching from town to town, and he's picked up six men. These six men, Peter, Andrew, Peter, James, John, Philip, Nathaniel, and they're there with him. She's looking at this and she's going, I got seven men in front of me. This is my son, virgin birth. He's the Messiah. I was told he would be the Messiah. I could see her saying and thinking, the kingdom's at hand. And Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And yet he's preaching and teaching. True, his hour had not come. His hour was to live, to die, to rise again, and at the wedding feast of the Lamb that we look forward to, that the wine will flow, flow freely and we will feast with the Lamb. She could have been thinking these things. We also see in this setting here God's divine work. I want to look at the divine setting. We've been looking at the human aspects Let's look at the divine setting that's, that's presented in this miracle. Jesus is taking this opportunity that the Father has provided, that he's in a town with a wedding that's ran out of wine, 
and he's using it to take his disciples to school. Remember later on in the scripture that the priests are confounded because they said, wow, these men have been with Jesus. This is the start of their three-year journey in school. And Jesus is starting this school. He shows them in this divine setting how a godly man talks to his mother and treats her with care. That was something these disciples needed to pick up. How do you treat your family? Do you treat them with respect? And do you point them to the Father? Remember also that the disciples, Jesus used this, that they even learned from Mary. I have to say that that it's a profound thing that she went to Jesus and she didn't come in with guns a-blazing saying, boys, get up. Go search the town for wine. She didn't do this. She came in and presented the problem to her son. Later on, she'll find out that she presented the problem to her Savior and let him supply the answer. That is a profound thing these disciples needed to learn Come to him with your problem. Let him supply the answer. We also see in this divine setting that God has revealed his son. God is taking this opportunity to say, here is my son. Here is Emmanuel, God with us. Here is the Messiah that I am supplying as the Savior of the world. And God does this by presenting a situation to his son and having his son supply the answer. And it's a miracle. And, it, and he displays his power. And that leads me into subpoint two, the display of Christ's power. I'm going to read John chapter 2, 6 through 10. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants had drawn out the water new, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine till now. If we look at this miracle, it's instantaneous. It took only the time for them to take it out of the jugs and give it to the headmaster. Now, these six jugs, I really want you to get a, 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 in your mind what they were, okay? These are six very, very large jugs. They're not small. You guys know when we have our barbecues and our get-togethers and our potlucks, I'll call them, right? That we pull out that old uh, orange container for uh, lemonade. That's only 10 gallons. These are 20 to 30. They're three times bigger than that orange container. If you, if you measure the weight, water alone would have been over 200 pounds. Anywhere between 160 to 250 pounds. So, so very, very heavy. And that's not including the jug, and it's made out of stone. These were stone pots that were not made out of, they're not clay, they're not fired ceramic. They were hewn out stone because they were things that are set aside, sanctified for use for purification. 
and God wanted them out of stone. So that's what these things, they, they had to be huge and heavy. Now, when the water had become wine, I sat and did some calculations, and I sat with Travis, and I looked at his calculations too, very similar to mine. Uh, this is a massive amount of wine. Uh, anywhere from, if you go on the low end, 20 gallons, 30 gallons, right? 605 or 908 bottles of wine. That's a whole lot of wine. And if you do the calculations on the glasses, it's either 3,630 glasses or up to 5,448 glasses of wine. A huge, 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 huge amount of wine. Now, Christ is not supplying the wine for this, you know, some debaucherous, crazy thing going to go down in Cana. No. If you look at Luke 21, 34, Christ warns us in the end times, be on watch lest your hearts be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of life and that the day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Jesus Christ never sanctioned drunkenness, ever. Matter of fact, he says it's a trap and if that's your lifestyle, when he returns, you're a goner. Be careful. So I want you to realize that's not the purpose of this huge blessing that he's done. If we take this to, take it from wine to finances, because really in, in ancient times, they had coins, of course, but they did a lot of trading of goods. And if you looked at the market value, and I only have today's values, right? And wine is rated at different ratings. They do a rating system much like the Olympics. You know, you, got, you rate it a four, or you get a five, or you, know, you got a 10, uh, if you use their rating system, we already see this is not considered by the headmaster a poor wine. It's rated as a good wine from his view. Now, we could use low ratings of a 4.5 on the wine scale and say it's a $100 bottle of wine, which would be in the good rating, okay? Not the $15, $20 wine, but step it up to the good. It's anywhere from $60,000 to $90,000, and if we step this up just a notch to a 4.8 rating, which is $528 per bottle, this could be as high as almost $500,000 of wine. And if you step this up to a fine and rare wine, it could be over a million dollars. An unbelievable gift. An unbelievable gift. This was a huge, huge gift to the young couple. Because even if it's $60,000, what a way to start your marriage. But if it's upwards of a million, wow. What was the quality like? We already said that the headmaster said this was good, but I need you to realize that the Greek term, and thank you, Travis, for helping me understand this, the Greek term that was used here was a shouting out, an exclamation. Not just, oh, this is good. No, it was, wow, this is great stuff. Groom, get over here. He's, he's excited. He's blown away. He's blown away because he sees these six jugs all full of wine, and he's going, oh, my goodness. This is a massively large uh, gift. 
what has happened? And he's probably thinking in his mind, wow, this is the good stuff. This is fine wine. And to have fine wine, you have to have it grown perfectly. It has to be in the right soil. You're not going to find this kind of wine in Savannah, Georgia or South Carolina. It's not the right climate for it. It has to have the right amount of sand and minerals and soil so that the roots of that vine do not get too wet or too dry. It has to wick away water. It can't have standing water. It has to be perfect conditions. That's why it's only grown in certain regions of the United States even. It has to have pure, clean water because it have, if it has dirty or tainted water, that taste comes into the wine. It comes into the grape. It has to have a good environment. It has to have the right plants and flora around so that the pollination uh, happens correctly and also the smells of the surrounding area get into that grape and affect the wine. That's what makes it the good stuff. It has to have full time to grow. It can have early on frost or, or late on conditions that, that make it so it isn't harvested well. And it has to be prepared cleanly and correctly. If it's not prepared correctly, you can destroy the entire batch. And when this headmaster was drinking this, this is what came to his mind. This is the good stuff. This is the good wine. This is the, the wine that you want to buy. This is the wine you want to get. You know, he didn't realize it, but he was being a witness of Christ's power. He is being used by God to be a witness for this miracle. And there are other witnesses. Who are the witnesses that witnessed this uh, Christ's power? We see the servants right out of the gate, right? We don't know how many men were here. I already told you, these, these jugs had to weigh over 300 pounds because of the stone that they're made out of and the water they're filled with. My guess is three men. I mean, these are stone jugs made for purification. You don't want to lose one because you set it down too hard. And I'm afraid that, you know, a 300-pound jug setting down by two men, I mean, it took uh, me and David the other day, both of us, to pick up that 10-gallon jug. I was glad he was young. You can imagine carrying 300 pounds. I think it would be at least three men. And there's six jugs. We don't know how many men there were, but there were more than three is in my mind. In the Old Testament, it says in Deuteronomy 19, 15, I'll read that to you. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong connection with any offense that has been committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. God in his providence not only supplied the unknowing headmaster as a witness, he supplied more than three unbiased, they don't have a dog in the show, so to speak, servants who are witnesses, unbiased. Now, the last witnesses we have are the disciples. They're biased, right? Just say it. They're biased. They're great. They saw that that miracle, they're no less, no, we have no less right to believe them, but it's, it's beautiful that God supplied unbiased servants. But the disciples, they saw it. We, we know that Peter, Andrew, 
James, John, Philip, and Nathaniel, those six men saw this, and according to verse 11, they believed. It made them believe. That power revealed to them made them stop and go, this is the Messiah. We're following the right man. And that leaves me to point two of my sermon today where I really want to unpack this. The preeminence of Christ. If you would, with me, you can keep your finger in John chapter 2. We probably won't come back to it. We may. But if you would turn over to Colossians with me. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, I believe by the, well, I know it's by the work of the Holy Spirit, but this, to me, parallels this miracle, this, what I'm going to read If you guys would turn to Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to only read verse 15 and 17, verse 15 through 17. I'll give you a moment to get there. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This miracle we can see, I believe, foreshadows that. We see here in Colossians that Paul taught the church of Colossae that God created the universe through Jesus Christ. God created the universe through Jesus Christ. And I believe this this miracle reflects that creative power. We can see that there was no wine and now there is. It reflects this by just even the setting. This is a wedding going on. The first miracle of creation in the beginning, there was a wedding. It was the wedding of Adam and Eve. There's also, I I love the parallel that there's six jugs used in this miracle. There's six days of creation. And honestly, who are the ones that believe that God created the earth in six literal days? His disciples and the servants know. That's how it is in this miracle. There's other parallels that Professor Nutting brought out when he taught the Sunday school class that I was in, but I won't go into them. I don't have time, but there's plenty there for you to go back and search in this scripture and go, okay, by this miracle, how does this parallel Genesis chapter one? Because it does, folks. And Christ showed his creative power. Actually, God revealed his son's creative power. I want to say that right. And let's read on. Colossians 17 through 19. Or actually, yeah, I'll start at 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You know, when you stop and you look at the miracle of water to wine, did Jesus pray, Father, would you take this water and turn it to wine? He did not. Did Jesus look over to the water and say, hey, water, become wine? He did not. 
in his fullness of deity, he literally just said, go take that. And it became wine. It literally obeyed his very thought. He is the fullness of God and it is dwelling in him and living richly. By Christ's very nature, he changed that water to wine and that water couldn't help but become wine because Christ said so. He wanted it to be so. You know, and water has been a part of many of God's miracles. If you look at God's miracles, you can just do a you know, quick survey of the Old Testament. You can see that God had water in creation. The Spirit hovered over the waters. Remember it says that. The expanse was separated. The sky and the water. The seas were formed. We can count that all in creation. God had water involved in his miracle when he flooded the earth and only eight survived. He had water involved when he had Moses command the Nile River to turn to blood. He had water involved when he parted the sea and had the Israelites cross on dry land. He had water involved when Moses struck the rock and water gushed out, a symbol of Christ. We have water involved when the Jordan was stopped and Joshua and the entire Israelite army and the people crossed the Jordan. We have water involved when Elijah was told by God to hold back the rain and then told him to release it. We have water involved in the New Testament. We see this one, water to wine. We heard, that, uh, we heard Travis teach on the stormy seas and Christ calming that water. We have water involved when he had the man go and wash his eyes out in the pool of Siloam to have his vision restored. We have Christ walking on water. Water is involved a lot. There's a lot of things where water is involved. I want to take you to one more miracle. Before, but before I do that, I want you to come back with me to those stone jugs. These stone jugs, as I said, were set aside for purification, and there's a lot of water there. You may think to yourself, why were there so many stone jugs with 30 gallons of water? Why would they need so much? We have a big event going on, folks. And that water was commanded by Jewish ritual and ceremony that they would clean not only themselves, they'd clean their hands with it, clean anybody who's working in the wedding, because this is a, a religious event, a profound one, a husband and wife coming together. So they would be purifying not only their hands and keeping themselves clean, they were commanded to clean all the utensils that would be used in a wedding. There's a lot. They were commanded to not only do that, but to clean even furniture. So you would have bowls and, and forks and knives and all of that. All the tableware would be put through this ceremonially clean water. But what's that water represent? That is from the Old Testament law. That is from the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant where you had to wash again and again and again and again. But Christ fills those jugs to the brim with wine. And you guys know by studying God's word that wine has a significant connotation. 
If you look at 1 Corinthians 11.25, it says, In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And we celebrate that monthly here. Matthew 26.27 reiterates that again. It says, And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, and, and he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood, the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. These stone jugs represent old and new covenant. The old way, which never completely atones for your sin, to the new covenant once and for all by the blood of Jesus Christ. And look at Colossians 1.20. I love that it parallels this miracle so well. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Christ. We can see in this miracle that God is pushing out the old covenant, bringing in the new so he can reconcile the relationship of Adam and all of Adam's race, we, mankind, to himself through his son. And in my opinion, this is the greatest of miracles involving water. This is the living water. Remember in John 4.14, the water I will give you, this is where he was speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. He says, the water I will give you will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Out of a stone heart harder than those six stone jugs will come a living water produced by the Holy Spirit. That is another miracle that God uses, water. Do you have that in your heart? Have you surrendered your life to Christ and repented of your sins to have that well of water in you. I'm hoping by this miracle you can see the power of Christ on display and how God has used that to reveal his son and his son's preeminence so that you can reflect on the fact that the word was God and you can, you, let, me, let me read that from John, sorry. Forgive me. So when you read the words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was, um, the word was with God, and the Word was God, that you can truly believe that Jesus Christ is preeminent. He was that Word. He is that Word. He was eternal. He is eternal. He will always be eternal. When I sat under Professor Nutting's class, it made me question what I had been believing all this time. You know, if you'd have asked me back then, Mark, do you, do you believe that Christ created the wine, the water to wine instantaneously? I would have said, yeah. But if you'd have asked me, Mark, do you believe that God created the earth in six literal days? I would have, I would have stammered a little. I would have said, well, you know, maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's stages. I'd allowed cracks to form in my view of God's word that is uncrackable. 
Why is that? Why is that that we do that? What I'm asking you guys today is that you don't do that. Don't, don't look at the deception that the enemy has laid before us. I want you to realize that you worship a supernatural God who can supernaturally speak this universe into existence in six days. We as the church, I'm sorry, guys, we listen to the head master of the feast more than we do the disciples at times. We need to stop. When we have these folks from what I call the soft sciences, right? The evolutionists, the naturalists, trying to push their religious beliefs on us, you need to keep in the back of your mind, you know what? You're just a wine taster. They taste the universe and they tell you, well, it's old. It's old. Here's what you need to believe. That headmaster, he didn't, he didn't know he was being used by God to witness this miracle. When he witnessed that, he said, wow, this is the good stuff. It takes time. When we see these soft scientists tasting the universe, and that's when they're doing their so-called investigation, and they want to believe they're unbiased, but they are biased. They are nothing but universe tasters. We need to stop listening to those universe tasters. We need to start listening to what the disciples teach and the witness of the servants. There are so many other places that God has challenged me to say, you know what, Mark, are you looking at Scripture correctly? I said earlier, the 180 conference, that was another time when God got me down on my knees to wipe a hair off the tile. It was hard. When it's the first time you're hearing about how secular culture has crept in and grown up in the church and you're being made aware of it, it'll put you back a little. But folks, what I'm asking is we need to do that. We as elders need to protect this church that way. When we have different things come sweeping through Christianity, we need to stop and say, okay, is that really a godly thing, a God approach to this? Is it biblical? When we hear about how psychiatry has just integrated into almost every church, and you need to remember that psychiatry is another soft science that's just based on a, a view that there is no God. We need to be careful how much we put our hands into the hands of psychiatrists and, and those kind of doctors. Be careful. We have the word of God. I think it's just another wine taster that's influencing the church. There's also other things, but I won't go into it, but you know, there's, there's the growth movements. There's those kind of things that really are just wine tasters trying to teach us something that's contrary to God's word. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, it says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be as wise as serpents and innocent of doves. We need to be discerning. We need to take and be careful on what we are putting our faith in and how we're practicing our faith. So what I'm asking you, church, this morning is reflect on this passage. Reflect on the power of Jesus Christ and his preeminence that was on display. 
if you would bow with me in prayer. Father God, I just praise you for your word, God. I praise you for what you teach us from just this miracle of water to wine. How richly you bless the young couple. God, how poorly it would have been for them to start their marriage with all the rumors and all the things that would have been said about them. How his business would have collapsed because people would have said he couldn't even bring wine. You want me to put faith in his business? God, you richly bless this young couple. You turned all of that around by your love. And God, we just thank you that you so richly blessed Cana with this wine that there is no mistake that this miracle came from your son. Lord, we just, uh, we just sit in awe of your power. And God, I am just profoundly moved by your supernatural ability that it is complete and perfect. God, let us have faith in the inerrancy of your word that when we see apparent faults in your word, let us dig in. God, let us see that your scripture is all-sufficient. And God, let us submit to its authority over our lives. Ask this in Christ's name.